feel like I could almost just straight go into application to the, uh, for the sermon after this. So, um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. I'll be starting in verse 48. John 8, 48 through the end of the chapter, verse 59. The Jews answered him and said, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went away out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, that is the question before us this morning. Is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy than more than just a tried appearance on Sunday morning? Is he worthy than a few minutes in the Bible daily or a few times? Is he worthy than more than just a a repetitive prayer at mealtimes. Is he worthy of our entire lives? That's the question that's before us this morning, Father. And I must confess when I come this morning, I'm humbled to bring your word because I fear I fall drastically short of living in light of that worth. So Father, would you lift your word? Would you lift your word high that we might see Christ? Would you For a moment this morning, pull back the veil. May we see into the inner sanctuary where Christ, your divine Son, is seated at your right hand, whom you are pleased to glorify, and He joyfully submits and obeys you. May we see Him as our greatest treasure and our most pressing need. And may it fuel us to walk in faith just as Abraham did. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. It was C.S. Lewis who coined the the phrase liar, lunatic, or Lord in regard to Jesus' divinity. And what he was saying was that the, the statements that Jesus made in regard to who he was were so significant, carried so much weight and value that he either had to be a liar He knew what he was saying, and he didn't believe it, but he said it anyways. Or he had to be a lunatic. He really believed who he said he was, but he really wasn't. He was crazy. Or he really was 
and is the Lord of all creation. And so we come to one of these pillar texts this morning that, that highlight that divinity of Jesus. A key point in our study in John. Because the divinity of Jesus makes all the difference. So I want to look at that this morning. I want to ask the question, is Jesus the divine Son of God who has existed forever? And what does that mean? What does it mean that, that He's eternal? We'll look at that briefly. And then if He is, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the divine eternal Son of God? So here's where I'm going this morning. I want to show from this text, primarily from verse 58. We've got 10 verses here, but I really want to zero in on 58 and kind of unpack that briefly. But I want to show that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. And that solidifies His claims of authority over sin and it makes Him worthy of our lives. So here's what we're going to do. I want to unpack Jesus' statement there that he sa- where He says, before Abraham was born, I am. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be eternal? What does that mean? I think there's some misconceptions there. So I want to briefly address that. And then I want to point to seven implications of Jesus being eternal from the latter two-thirds of this chapter. And I'm only going to point to these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in them. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. But, but my hope is just to kind of give you, give you a primer, point to these things, because the, the latter two-thirds of this chapter really deal with Jesus teaching in the temple. And we've covered a lot of ground over really two months um, in this. And so as we come to the close here, because this closes out this chapter, Jesus leaves the temple at this point and John moves on in, in, in what he's writing. But the, the, the culmination of who Jesus is explaining who He is really comes down to this point about Jesus being the divine Son of God. And all of the implications that come from that, or at least a lot of them, are pointed to in what He said to the Jews previously. So I want to point to seven of those. And just hopefully let that be a primer for you to ask the question, is Jesus worthy of my life and am I living in line with that? That's where we're going this morning. Okay, There's a lot there. Like I said, I'm not going to delve a lot into the details i'm hoping that it'll just be a primer some of these things you may latch onto and say i want to look more into that that it would stir your heart stir your affection stir your mind to know the son of god more deeply more intimately and that it would affect the way you live in uh, your life as a christian in the mix with other people all right so that's where we're going this morning so the first question is What is the claim that Jesus makes? Get to the end of this chapter and these Jews who've been sitting here listening to the things that Jesus have said at the very end of the chapter, they pick up stones to kill Jesus. Why did did they do that? What did he say that made them that upset? Well, they'd ask him two questions just recently. In verse 53, they say, who do you make yourself out to be? In verse 56, or excuse me, um, in verse 57, they say, you, you've not seen Abraham, have you? And what Jesus says both affirms that he is indeed greater than their father Abraham and that he had seen Abraham. He makes the statement, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. That's interesting. He didn't say, I was. That would have conveyed, yeah, he, he's been. But he says, I am. He says, I am. He, Jesus uses here specifically the very same phrase 
that God used of himself in Exodus 3 when Moses, standing there before the burning bush, and, Jesus, uh, uh, and God comes to Moses, and he says, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, and all the things that are going to happen there, and Moses, being timid, says, all right, well, they're not going to believe me. Who do, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. That, that phrase, I am, um, the, the, the word for <coughs> Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh, is derived from that phrase, I am. And we see it throughout all the Old Testament. It's a pre-existent statement. When God said that to Moses, it, it conveys pre-existence. I've always been. My character is unchanging. Specifically for Moses, it reminded him that God is covenantally faithful. That he was faithful to Abraham in carrying out his promises. He's faithful to Isaac. He's faithful to Jacob. While he's been silent so many years there uh, in, in, in Egypt, he says, I'm still faithful. Tell the people, I am sent you because I'm faithful. So Jesus uses the same word, the same phrase to tell the Jews who he is. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claiming to be God, and you can see that the Jews track with this. Okay, well, he's either got to be a liar, which they've called him that, or he's got to be a lunatic, which is who they really think he is. They've insulted him, said, we think you're a Samaritan, which is kind of like the lowest of the low, and we think you've got a demon. You're crazy. And they're, they're offended at this. They're phenomenally offended, so much so that they go and they pick up stones to kill him. They're following in line with what the Levitical law said that they should do if someone blasphemes the name of God. How much higher blaspheme can you get than claiming to be divine? And this is where Jesus is. This is what Jesus says. Because it's only God who's existed forever. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Only God is eternal. Only God described that. And Jesus here makes a clear statement that he is eternal. And so the Jews pick up on that. They see it and they seek to stone him. They seek to stone him. If you're in conversation with someone from another faith and they say, I don't believe Jesus is the divine son of God, this is a great place to go. Because the question that I have, and I've asked this of people, and that you should ask them too, is why did the Jews stone this man for what he said? Well, I, I have no other answer than they believed he was claiming divinity. And I have no other answer than to say John records this this way because John believed Jesus was the divine Son of God. He makes it a clear statement. So, what are the implications of that? Why does it matter that Jesus is the divine Son of God? We'll get to that in a minute, but let's pause for a moment and let's, let's ask the question, what does that mean for Jesus to be eternal? What, what does it mean? Because our, our culture kind of has this fascination with living forever. If you've watched movies or TV shows, every now and then you'll see a character pop up who is sort of stuck in this eternal state. They're a fictional character, you know, for whatever reason, and they're, they're on the scene, maybe they're the main character, and they're living forever, and they're sort of trapped in this world where they've experienced loss. They've fallen in love with somebody, and that person, you know, did not live forever, didn't have that character trait or whatever, and they've died, and this person is sad, and, you know, whatever. They, there's, there's, there's a plot line there, and it follows. It goes throughout. 
And so we kind of have this fascination with living forever. But when we watch those characters and we read those stories, those characters betray more humanity in what we see in eternality than divine. Because we see that those characters are still to some degree bound by time. So I think we have a slight misunderstanding of what that means. So let's take a moment, let's get some clarity here. Now I'm not going to exhaust the, the concept of the character of God and his eternality. You can pick up a good systematic theology book, dig through that, find a good study Bible, you know, work through that. But I want to just make some, some just very simple statements here. Okay? What does it mean that Jesus is eternal? One, it means he's existed, he is existing, and he will exist. There, is ne- there was never a point when Jesus was not. He's the point of reference for everything. Think about it. Here these Jews, the people who are claiming to be the people of God, pick up stones to kill Jesus. And Jesus looks at those stones. He remembers when he made those stones. I mean, does that blow your mind? I mean, how ironic is that? Jesus is the point of reference for everything. He has existed, he is existing, and he will exist. But beyond that, he transcends time. He's above it and he's independent of it. Meaning he's not limited by its boundaries. Now, this, this is, this, I realize this is getting difficult to kind of grasp. You know, this, this should be because we're getting into these non-communicable attributes of God that he doesn't share with us. And so we have a hard time laying hold of them. But just think for a minute in how we are bound by time. Okay, our limitations to time. Think of, wor- think of these words. Hurry, wait, I'm out of time. Deadline, I've got to make up time. I don't have the time. All of these things that we use in the course of everyday life, they show our, that our, we're bound by time. We're constrained by it. Our entire sh- the entire structure of the human language, the fact that, it's, that you have to put words in past, present, and future tense. It conveys that we are bound by time. We, we don't really have an idea or a category in our mind for what it really means to exist outside of time. Right? Think about these, these things or concepts. Clocks and watches. Right? How many of you have a watch or a clock? If you've got a smartphone or any sort of a phone, you got it. Okay? We're bound by time. The, the idea of winning and losing in a game. Bound by time. There is a point at which we are winning... Now we are losing, and now we have lost. It's a finality. You can't go back and say, well, we're going to winning again. It doesn't work that way. You know, the clock's done. It's finished. Now we move on. What about you make a list, right? Why do you make a list? Uh, anybody a list maker in here? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a habitual list maker, you know? Why do you, why do you make a list? It's because you don't have the time to do everything. So you have to prioritize. And you go A, B, C, D, one, two, three. You know? Okay, we're going to do all of these and the C's get kicked to the side and we do them another day because I don't have time. I can't do everything. Birthdays, they celebrate the passing of time. Photos hanging on the wall show the effects of time on us and on those that we love. We are incredibly bound by time. Jesus is not. So when Jesus says, it is not my time, or my time has not yet come, he's not sitting there waiting passively. He's in control of that moment and every succession of moments leading up to it and every moment that's going to move forward from it. And that time 
is delayed not for our not for his benefit but for ours you, you see that Christ came to save us from our sins. And he didn't step into the world as a baby and go, I'm here, you know, I'll take the check, please, and I'll go to the bank, I'll cash it for you, you know, you're saved. It was delayed 30-some years till his death on the cross to show us how exceedingly sinful sin was. The passing of time doesn't change the eternal son's being, his purpose, his perfections, or his knowledge. These are true of God the Father and they're true of God the Son. So as we drop down into John, where John is recording this about Jesus in his flesh, the divine Son clothed in humanity, the eternal Son has entered into time, this succession of moments that are generated by his creation, and he's interacting with it. He's permitting his human form to be influenced by it. He's aging. He bleeds on the cross. Right? But his eternal being is unchangeable. And you can read through the Gospels and you can see points where these are highlighted. There's a lot of mystery there, I have to admit. All I can do is point to Scripture and say, here's where you're seeing, here's where you're seeing the divine attribute of, of God in His omniscience. Of the divine Son here. Here's where you're seeing Him subjecting Himself to the confines of humanity. You can point to those things. They're here. I can't explain how they all mesh together. All I can say is that they do. So Jesus claims to be the eternal Son of God. He claims divinity. And what it means for Him is very, very different than what, what we think of oftentimes. So what are the implications of that? What are the implications of this divine Son of God entering into, into humanity, making these claims that He did, and dying on the cross for our sins? What are the implications of that? I want to point to seven implications from what He has already said. Because if He were not the divine Son of God, say these are not true. We cannot say that these things are true and that Jesus is not worthy of our lives. But because He is, He is worthy. Okay, so let's go through these. One, the eternal Son has authority to free us from sin. Back earlier in the chapter, verse 21 through 24, Jesus makes several other I am statements. He's talking to the Jews and He says, where I'm going, you can't go. I'm not of this world, you're of this world. I'm from above, you're not. Therefore you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. You must believe that Jesus is what? Jesus is the divine Son of God. That's where John goes at the end of the, end of the chapter. You have to believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God because only He has the power to free you from sin. He later says, and I'll paraphrase this, he says, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth about who you are and who I am. You'll see me as your greatest need and treasure and you'll be free from the power and the penalty of sin. That's how the Son makes us free by faith in Him. The author of Hebrews later captures this. Jesus crucified on the cross. He's raised decades later author of Hebrews pens this in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, since the children, the children of promise by faith, 
share in the flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Christ became flesh that he might set us free. Only the divine Son of God can have that kind of power over sin. Number two, the eternal Son has the authority over death. Verse 51, Jesus makes a phenomenal statement as well. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now the Jews there thought of that in the physical form. The worst that can happen to us is that we physically die. Jesus saw beyond that to the separation of the soul from its good and loving creator. Death is the consequence of sin. Genesis chapter 3, Romans 5. It's the greatest, death is probably the greatest indicator that humanity is subject to time, right? The fact that you have a date on the calendar you don't know of in which you will pass from life to death changes everything about how you live your life, right? Death is the consequence of sin. And so only the eternal son could have the power to overcome something so great. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He will never taste the separation of the soul from its good and loving creator. Number three, the eternal son fulfills God's promise to Abraham. Jesus says of Abraham in verse 56, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And that happened. Abraham Back in Genesis, looks forward in faith to when God's covenant promise to bless all the nations would be fulfilled. That's what God had promised him. Since through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And as Hebrews eleven thirteen says, he welcomed it from a distance. Now, perhaps God had given Abraham more revelation regarding the Christ than we're told. You think of all that Abraham saw, you know, and the implications of Isaac and being, you know, his uh, sacrifice on the mountain and God sends the ram, substitutionary atonement, all the things that are there. We're not told. We're not told exactly how much Abraham knew and understood. But to one degree or another, Abraham was assured of the hope that God had promised he would bless all the nations through his offspring. He rejoiced to see Isaac, the son of laughter, right? Who came into the world. God's fulfilling his promise. He's going to continue. He's going to continue. And all that was promised to Isaac, as Isaac moves forward, carries that covenantal promise and shares that with his offspring, right? He rejoiced from a distance. And he walked in accordance with that assurance. Only the eternal son can fulfill that promise. How else would all the nations be blessed? What does he mean to be blessed? Does that mean they're all going to have every food that they desire? Does that mean, what does that mean? In the scriptures, it means they're going to be set free from the curse of sin. Only the divine son of God who has the power and authority over sin, has the power over death, can fulfill that covenant promise. Number four, the eternal son introduces us to the father. Several times through this section, like verse 19, verse 55, 
the Jews say, we know God, he's our father. And Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. The Jews who had the law, they had the historical records of who God was and what he'd done, they still really did not know God. If they had, Jesus said, you would have rejoiced to see me and you would have received me. But as it was, they wanted to kill him. See, the Jews knew God by way of a third party. Jesus knew him personally. That was his claim. He knew God personally. If Jesus is the eternal son of God, he's the, mo- he's the one most qualified to tell us about God. To inform our knowledge of who God is, who we are in relation to him, and why we've been created. So the eternal son introduces us to the father. Number five, the father puts supreme value on the divine son. Take you just through a couple verses. Jesus in verse 29 says, He who sent me, here's the, he's speaking of the Father, the Father who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The Son loves to obey the Father. Verse 49 and 50. Jesus answers, says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one, it's understood that's the Father who seeks and judges. And in verse 55 and 56, you've not come to know him, speaking of the Father, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep my word. Sorry, verse 54, Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. The very one whom you say, he's our God. So the Father puts supreme value on the Son. Because of the, na- the nature of their relationship, the Father puts that exclusive supreme value on Jesus. So we cannot say that we love God and reject His Son because of the emphasis that the Father puts on the value of the Son. If you tell me, Austin, I love you, you know, you're great, I want to hang out, but you know what, I, don't, I, I hate your daughter. I don't, I don't like her. And you speak ill against her. I'll tell you, you won't spend much time in my house. We won't ha- be able to have fellowship together. You know, love for me is intrinsically re- linked to love for my daughter. I don't know how that happens. It just is. If you're a parent, you know that. If you're a grandparent, you know that. We cannot say that we love God and yet reject His Son because of the value that the Father puts upon the Son. The Father loves to glorify the Son and the Son loves to obey the Father. Number six, the eternal son gives the light of life. Chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does light do? Light brings clarity. It lays truth bare. And only the eternal son who has supreme knowledge, whose being never changes, who never learns new things, Only the eternal Son, Son of God, who doesn't change in His moral perfections, can illuminate life to us, can show truth from error, can show good from bad. So the eternal Son gives the light of life. And then the last one, number seven, the eternal Son of God was resurrected. 
if you follow the question-answer format here from a few of these verses, you, you notice something. Twice Jesus is asked, who are you? Verse 25, the Jews ask Him, who are you? And verse... Fifty-three, they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Twice they ask him, who are you? And twice, both times, Jesus' response points to his relationship with the Father. He points back to his relationship with the Father. He says, he says so when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Who am I? I'm the divine Son of God. And it's characterized by my relationship with God. They ask Him, who do you make yourself out to be? Verse, 50, uh, verse 55 says, or verse 54 says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. You've not come to know Him, but I know Him. So twice when Jesus is asked, who are you? He refers to his relationship with the Father. But specifically what he says in verse 28 gives us, gives us a, a window into what he means in regard, in regard to that. Why, why does he point to his relationship with the Father? Because they're not believing that. They're not understanding. But he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. What's that referring to? That's pointing back, at least in John's Gospel, to John chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. If you're not real familiar with that story, that's the children's lesson this morning. It's a great opportunity to ask them what they learned. Okay? But Moses lifted up the, serp the serpent in the wilderness, so Jesus would be lifted up. Okay? Whoever looks upon the Son of Man is set free, is cured from the disease of sin and death. Jesus says, when you lift me up, you'll know that I am He. He says, it will become clear when I'm crucified who I really am. Why? Because later He'd be resurrected. Right? Later the Father would resurrect Him. This is what happens when the, the, when the, 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 the disciples are sitting in the upper room. No, they're kind of wringing their fingers and not real sure what's going to happen and the, the Holy Spirit comes just as Jesus has promised and they're empowered and they go out from there and they change the world with the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel wasn't Jesus is, gonna, is here and he's going to bring you your best life now. You know, Jesus is going to give you a red Ferrari. It's not any of these things. Or Jesus is just one of many ways. The disciples didn't die for that. They said he is the divine son of God who's come, who's worthy of your lives to set you and he's come to set you free from the curse of sin and death. Paul snatches this in Philippians. He writes to the Philippian church in 2 9 through 11 he says for this reason the humility of the divine son of God for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of ev of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on, and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, God doesn't, in, 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 the, in the Bible, God doesn't share His glory with anyone. And yet here we see the Father shares His glory with the Son. 
that they're co-equal. They're different in roles, but they're co-equal in value, in dignity, in their divinity. I can't explain it any other way. It's here. That's, that's what I see. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The crucifixion and the resurrection bring clarity to Jesus as the divine Son of God because the Father glorified Him by raising Him from the dead. No mere human could do what Jesus did. And here in our text this morning, John cl- uh, Jesus clarifies that no other created being, no angel, no otherwise, could fulfill that role. It was earmarked for the divine Son of God since before eternity passed. So those are seven implications. As John closes this, it's interesting. He closes it with Jesus hiding himself. Remember the the Jews who are devout. They're there. They're there that day. I don't know what time of day it is, but they're there that day. They're worshiping. They know their Old Testament. They care. They didn't just go, oh, whatever. They cared. They cared enough to go pick up stones. And yet they became his executors. The divine eternal light had shown in that moment it had revealed sin and it became ugly. And so Christ hid himself. It wasn't his time. But it's interesting that Christ is content to hide himself from the religiously proud and let sin run its course. But he's pleased to dwell with the humble in heart who rejoice and receive him as Savior and Lord. Isaiah 57, 15 says, I dwell on a high place in a holy place. And also with a contrite and lowly of spirit. So let me just ask you as we close, let me ask you to think about those implications. How does that apply to you? Is Jesus worthy of your life? Not, not can you write it in a journal, not can you just kind of give a thumbs up, not can you, you know, like that on Facebook or whatever. I mean, are you living in light of that? That's what I have to ask myself. When I read this and I come through these implications, I have to ask, am I living in light of that? Is the, is the eternal Son, is my faith in the eternal Son freeing me from sin? Not in my entire life, am I sinless? Do I see that He's changing my affection to love more the things that God loves? And I'm, I'm lovingly desiring to submit to God's rule in my life. And I'm feeling that the tug and the grip of sin is loosening. I'm experiencing freedom in some of these areas. Sometimes the roots of sin run deep. And they're hard to get rid of. And the Lord gives us, takes time to do that. Other times it's fast. But do I, do I see that happening in my life? Do I view death as the supreme consequence of sin and all of its gravity and see death is the eternal separation from God who's made me, who loves me, who sent His very Son, not, not some just person, not some created being, but His very Son to die for my sins, to take that punishment. I tell you, if you see that, the more you see death in that light in the way that Scripture portrays it, Jesus becomes more and more precious and the need for others to know Him becomes more and more urgent. I'll tell you, when my eyes are eclipsed from that, I don't see Jesus as that precious, and I don't see the need for others to know Him as urgent. Do you rejoice that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets? 
I mean, the gospel is something that Scripture says the angels long to look into. They're bound by time, right? And we have the privilege of looking back on that, reading about this from this side of the cross and rejoicing. Where Abraham looked forward and rejoiced in the day that Christ would come and that fulfillment would come to pass, we can look back on it. Do you rejoice in that? Do you look back on it and rejoice? And does it empower you to walk in faith in the same way that Abraham does? Did. See, I'm bound by time. Who informs your view of God? If you have children or grandchildren, who informs your children's view of God? Is it culture? Is it, is it culture? It's whatever popular? Or is it scripture? Does it challenge you to speak into the lives of other people? You say, that's, wait a minute, that's not who God is. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about who this God is. I love what you said earlier, Antoine. I start talking about the gospel and they start kind of shutting down. You say, wait, 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 there's good news. Can you at least wait until there's good news? That's great. Because I'll tell you, I'm oftentimes, I'm just, I'm already kind of out of gas early on and I don't think about that. You know, wait, let's just at least hear the good news. You know? Does the divine son have supreme value in your life? Where do you spend your time not asking if you spend 10 hours a day in the Bible. What portion of your thinking and of your heart does Christ occupy? What does it occupy? If He's really the divine Son of God, He's worthy, as we sang earlier. He's worthy. Not just of an hour or two hours on Sunday and some time spent in you know, some devotional or even just following some religious actions. He's worthy of all of our lives. So let me pray. I'll close. Um, I'll pray for our food and then I'm not sure what the process is for shuffling tables, but we're good at improv, so we'll figure that out, right? So, all right, well, let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you. And the words that I have are feeble and frail. But I know that Christ is worthy. I know and I believe that you sent Jesus. The divine Son of God stepped into time to allow himself to a certain degree to be influenced by its limitations, to be clothed in humanity and to undergo that humility that he might set us free from the curse of sin and death that He might introduce us to You in a full way, that we would see Your mercy tangibly, that we would know Your grace experientially. That we would be drawn to You. So I pray You would do that this morning, Father, in our hearts, not just on an emotional level, Father, not just in an intellectual level, but you would stir our souls to know Jesus more and in turn know you, the Father, more. That your Spirit would empower us to live and to abide in Christ daily. That we would trust in your promises even in our darkest moments. 
And Father, in those moments as we have a sobering reality about why we do the things that we do and why we endure any sufferings that we endure, however big or small they might be, that we would take a hard look at our life and our faith. And that, Father, you would lay clear to us with the illuminating light of Christ the truth of good and who you are and following Jesus and all its implications for our lives with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers, and our daily conduct and any alternative. And Father, you would stir us on to walk in faith as so many others have gone before us. They've counted the cost. They've considered Jesus of supreme value even if it costs them their lives. Father, would you do that this morning for us? If there are some who are here who've never fully seen Jesus clearly, I pray, Lord, that you would use my feeble words, use your word to open blind eyes. These might trust Christ for the first time and walk in newness of life, to know what it's like to be freed from the penalty of sin, to experience sanctification and growing in righteousness, coming into a loving relationship with you through your Son, being empowered by your Spirit. Would you do this in us this morning, Father, as you continue to be the eternal Father, the eternal God who keeps his covenants and is faithful. Father, would you bless this food that we're about to eat? Lord, this temporal food that is that will soon disappear. Would you bless it? Would you let it nourish our bodies? And Father, would it remind us of the supreme food of the gospel that nourishes our soul, that one day we'll sit at your table where the Lamb of God who was slain will stand, will break the seals, open the scrolls, and your plans will be finished. We'll drink from the fountain that never dries up. We'll be satisfied forever in your presence. Father, would you do this for us and more as we fellowship this afternoon? And Father, I thank you for Tracy and Clayton and the blessing of life that you've given to them. Father, as you have blessed them and you've brought this baby in to bear and to be born and to thrive in the womb, Father, would you continue to nurture it and grow it? Father, soon it would step out into the world that they might hold it in their hands, begin the process of growing this child in the fear and admonition of you. Lord, would you do these things and more? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.